This message by Brian Chappell, titled, Gathering to Rehearse the Gospel, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the second general session at our Worship God 2011 conference. Brian is president of Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, and the professor of practical theology. Bob, thank you so much. That was, um, you know, sweet and, and articulate and lovely and... I mean, it was really good, but I was kind of hoping to be introduced by Mark, you know. (laughs) Isn't it great that our identity is in Christ and not what people think, isn't that? Um, I can tease Bob because he and I, though we've just face-to-face uh, met this morning, we've, we've corresponded and quoted each other in books and had uh, wonderful camaraderie in the gospel. And it was so wonderful hearing just kind of before I was talking about the unity of the church through history, through the creeds, through the way which God has unified his people because that's what his spirit does for his people. When the gospel is honored, his people are united. And being able to be with you and talk about how God has united his people in worship is not only a privilege because I can say it, but because I know Bob has said it so consistently and well and faithfully in your midst. So I... Uh, I travel down what I believe is a well-trod path. But what I want you to see is not my words or Bob's words or the ministry of Sovereign Grace or any of our churches, but rather the message of the Word. So I want to take you to Isaiah chapter 6. We'll start there, and I'll ask you to keep your Bibles at the ready because we'll be going various places in the Scriptures as we seek to see what God has said about the nature of worship that unites his people in the gospel, not just for our time, but through the ages. Before we read, I'm going to ask that you would pray with me. Father, your word is truth. By it we are instructed. But more than that, we are led by the voice of Jesus himself. That word which your spirit inspired is not only made available through the ages. By your spirit, our hearts are yet this day opened to the truth that you would speak. So we ask that by your word and by your spirit, you would do your work in our hearts, not for us alone, We have a privilege, a privilege of recognizing leaders gather here now who will touch many more lives. So by your word and by your spirit, would you be using your church to glorify our Savior, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 6, you will recognize this important Event and then charge in the life of Isaiah. The prophet reports in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had 
Six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth. And said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I. Send me. This last Christmas, my wife's choir determined to sing Bach's Christmas oratorio. And that, that worried me a little bit because I knew it would, it would stretch our choir's ability, but I knew it would also stretch our congregation's ability to hear and listen a little bit to classical, formal, difficult music. But we were aided by, in my wife's planning, just a week before the Christmas oratorio of Bach being Son, a, a musicologist coming to our church and actually explaining what Bach was doing in the oratorio. So we could, we could kind of listen with informed ears and, and understand what was going on. I think what we all expected was this. Here we have a, a classical musician who's going to be formed by the conventions of his era. And therefore, this, this classical music, by its tradition, is going to be rather staid and conventional. What we learned was, in fact, what Bach was doing in his Christmas oratorio was breaking the conventions of his age. He was actually trying to make sure that his music, in, in ways quite non-traditional was actually reflecting the message of the gospel. He wanted not the music to shape the gospel. He wanted the gospel to shape the music. And now, I'm not going to tell you I'm the expert to explain these things, but but what we were told was this. Bach starts just in a very unusual place. Instead of having the the drama of the, the trumpets and the brass kind of announcing the coming of the Christ child, instead Bach starts in G major with strings and wind instruments. Now, strings. Think angels and their harps. That's what's represented by the strings. And flutes. The shepherds in the fields. You have heaven... And earth brought together in G major. Next, quite strikingly, keys change to D major. Two sharps. The regal sound as now the 
the recitations that are occurring in the oratorio move to the angels as glory to God in the highest is now expressed in the the regal tones of the most powerful music that can be brought. Then we move to the shepherds again. G major. One sharp. But now we have to go closer into the manger scene. And as we move closer into the major scene, manger scene, C major, no sharps. Finally, as we begin to understand that in that manger scene is the God who created the universe, emptying himself in glory and covering himself in swaddling clothes. A minor. No sharps, no flats, minor key to emphasize the humiliation of the God of the universe. It's incredible. Once you begin to see what's happening, that a man who could have been locked into his conventions instead says this, I want the message to shape the music. I want the message to be forming the worship. I I don't have a much stronger or more explicit goal than that this morning than to say to you that that worship that honors God prioritizes God, but it also prioritizes his message. And the way in which that happens is we don't fit the message to the music. We don't fit the message to the worship form. Instead, the message shapes the worship. And if the message is the gospel, then the gospel is shaping the worship. Now, that's not just a convention of Bach. I'm, I'm not here to extol Bach. I'm, I'm not here to make an idol of a traditional form of music. Rather, I want you to hear the ethic of a man who is willing to say, I want the contours of my worship to follow the contours of the gospel. Because when you begin to see that, you begin to see something consistent in the scriptures. And as Bob and others will tell you later, becomes consistent in the life of the church through the ages. If, if you think of how is God wanting us to understand worship conformed by the gospel, then you ask the question, well, how would God form worship if he were doing it? And there's no better place to look than to Isaiah chapter 6, where it's apparent that what God is doing is he's leading the prophet to a proper understanding of the glory of God brought to existence in his life. If you will, God is taking the lead in the worship that's being formed. How does God do that? Where does he begin? Well, well, it's obvious, if you will, that God begins with the glory of God. Isaiah is in the temple and in in ways that we find incredible. He he sees in the temple and it's as though though the, the roof has opened up and he sees into heaven itself and what God reveals first is a great glory. Incredible glory. And and we begin to see the marks of it and the measure of it and ultimately the effects of it as Isaiah is led forward down a path of worship to understanding what worship itself is. What, what if you will, you can see it that way, are, are the marks of this great glory that God is revealing. First, there is just the sovereign revelation of who God is. 
Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now you have to understand the historical context to, to really gather the glory that's being said. In the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah has been a king of power. He has kept the, the, the wheels of commerce greased, the walls of defense strong. And now it's the year that King Uzziah dies. And surely all the people are thinking, what will become of us? Is life itself undone? Everything's uncertain now, except Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon his throne. We're undone. We're worried. We're running to and fro. And yet, what do I see? God is seated upon his throne as if to say he's not worried. He's not moved. Our lives seem undone. But our God reigns. And that knowledge that our God is sovereign yet, despite the turmoil of the world, is is the first revelation of the glory of who God is. But it's not just the glory of God's sovereign rule. It's the nature of that God that is now going to be revealed as well as The shiningness of his glory is revealed to us in particular ways. Yes, he is high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple and above him stood seraphim, each with six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. He's not just sovereign. This God is separate. High and lifted up. As though what Isaiah is saying in the terms of his people is, our God is untouched by the taint of the world. He is holy. Sovereign in his majesty. Holy in his character. Earth's stain does not touch him. He is Separate from the devastations, separate from the sin, separate from the impurity. And that that separateness is revealed in, if you will, the shining radiance of the holiness that cannot even be perceived by the angels. The seraphim, whose very name means burning ones, are around the throne. But when the seraphim fly... So much is the radiance of the purity of God evident before them that with two wings they fly, but with the other they cover their eyes and with others they cover their feet as if to say the holiness of God is so great that even the angels neither wish to see it nor be exposed by it. Even the hosts of heaven wilt before the holiness of God. He is he is so holy That the purity of the radiance of his holy presence is this purifying, cauterizing, holy radiance that even the angels cannot endure. He is sovereign, holy, and so holy that even the angels can barely abide the presence of the holiness of God. This is great. Glory. 
And the glory is not only given its definition, but its measure. These seraphim say to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. If a Hebrew wanted to say something with emphasis, what did he do? He doubled it. He said it again. But the angels say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. As if to say, words cannot contain the holiness of God. It's, it's immeasurable. This, this pure radiance of the sinlessness of God, of one untouched by earth's taint, that, that radiance is so great that even the angels of heaven cannot find words to speak of the degree of the holiness of God. And we understand something, even the duration of this holiness, as though it has no end by the fact of where these words appear elsewhere in Scripture. You know these words from Isaiah. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the whole earth is full of His glory. Where else do you hear those words? Revelation, the fourth chapter. As the hosts of heaven gather around the throne of the Lamb and say, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then we see the scriptures describing they sing that song as long as the Lamb sits upon the throne. And then John says, and he sits upon the throne forever. He is the holy God of the Old Testament. He is the holy God of the New Testament. He is the holy God of the new creation. He is the three times forever holy God. And and because you know those words and I know those words, then we have trouble grasping the significance of them. It's as though to, to finally make us understand, Isaiah begins to describe the drama of the event visually. So we will understand the, the greatness of the glory of the holiness of God. There is a drama put before our eyes. You, you, you've heard of a, of a tempest in a teapot, which means much ado about nothing. This is a tempest in a temple. As we are made to see the greatness of the holiness of the glory of God. Isaiah says this. Verse 3, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Now, can you separate from where you are right now and just visualize this? You walk into the temple of Israel. The roof has been opened so that you see into the glories of heaven itself. And now the whole place begins to fill with smoke. Where does the smoke come from? The altar of atonement. As if to say the holiness of God is so great... That there cannot be enough sacrifice. Everything has to fill with smoke. The smoke fills like this this great storm cloud within the temple. Showing how great is the holiness of God. And through the storm cloud, up into the heavens itself, are the seraphim. The burning ones 
who flit about the throne in their fire like an incessant lightning. And like lightning, they have an audible effect. They sing holy Holy, holy. But it is not, it is not the angelic harp string music and melody that you anticipate. When they sing holy, 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 it is like thunder. They sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And as they speak like an earthquake from the thunder, the thresholds of the temple themselves shake down to earth as the holiness of God from heaven to earth in this great thunderstorm of the proclamation of the glory of God captures everything, shakes the earth and shakes our prophet to his knees. Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. What does Isaiah do? Verse 5. I said, woe is me. I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King. The Lord of hosts. What has happened? We don't just see the. The great glory of God on display and the marks and the measure of the holiness of God. We are now made to see the effects of the glory upon a person. Isaiah has seen the glory of God. And now having been exposed by the radiance of the holiness of God. He says, I can't stand this. I am lost. We, we have trouble finding the English word for the Hebrew. I am, I am devastated. I am ruined. I have seen the king. I have seen the king of glory. I have seen him in his holiness. And, and it, it drives me from any pride in self. I am a man of unclean lips. You know what he's saying? I can't join the angel's song. They sing... Holy, holy, holy. I can't, I, I, I can't join that song. I, I'm not worthy of that. And by the way, no one else is either. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. No one I know. No one upon the face of the earth can sing the heavenly song. No one is worthy. I have seen the true glory of the holiness of God. And when I see that, I know none can stand. When the promise keepers movement was still strong, some of you may have been there. There was that, that time in which they had the, the clergy conference in the, in the Georgia Dome. Twenty-five thousand pastors gathering together and there was there was a moment in which the song leader led in in an antiphonal response to this portion of the scriptures as 25,000 people from across the stadium one to another began to say these words one to another holy 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 is the lord god and 
And when you heard it, when you, when you heard 25,000 voices proclaiming the holiness of people got out of their seats and some went to their knees and some fell on their faces before one another, before God, as if to say, when I truly begin to grasp the greatness of the glory of the holiness of God, I am humbled beyond belief, beyond my understanding of who I thought I was before this moment. The holiness of God has revealed to me the depth of my unworthiness, the reality of my sin. He is holy and I am not. It's the way it's supposed to work. That the when God leads his people into an understanding of the greatness of his glory, they are humbled. And worship that prioritizes the glory of God necessarily leads people to humility before him. It's not just seeing in Isaiah. I ask you to keep your Bibles ready because I want you to see the consistency of this through the scriptures. How glory leads to the need of grace. You want to see it? What happens when God reveals himself to Moses? Remember when the the covenant is being revealed at Sinai and the glory of God. If you look in your Bibles at Deuteronomy chapter 5. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses has rehearsed not only God's work among his people, but now the law that reveals the holiness of God. In Deuteronomy 5, in verse 22, Moses then says, These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. Do you hear the Isaiah echoes? The fire and the cloud and the voice of God, the glory of God yet again being revealed. And then what happens? Verse 24. And you said, Moses speaking to the people, behold, the Lord, our God has shown us his what? His glory and greatness. And we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. There it is again. The great glory of God being revealed to his people. And what is their response? Verse 25. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and still Lord, I can't stand this. Before your glory, I recognize I am unworthy. It would condemn me. It would wipe me out, this glory. I can only bow before it as a king would later. Do you remember Solomon in the dedication of the temple? Now in your Bibles, 2 Chronicles and chapter 7. 2 Chronicles and chapter 7. Here we are toward the end of the account of the dedication of the temple. The great glory of God has been revealed. Sacrifices occur in the dedication of this new temple. We are told there are so many sacrifices that they could not be numbered. And the temple has been built. It It is glorious in its essence. 
we are told by other accounts that so glorious was the marble and the gold that was the gilt of the temple that on a bright and sunny day, from 20 miles away, the sky itself would be irradiated by the reflection of the sun off the temple of Solomon. It was this, this great representation of the glory of God. But it wasn't just what happened externally that was representing the glory of God. After this, this great influx of the people to God's glory, what then happens? Verse 1, 2 Chronicles 7. As soon as Solomon had finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the what? The glory of the Lord filled the temple. There it is again. The glory is now revealed to God's people in the place where they will worship. And what? Verse 2. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Even, even the holy people can't stand before the holiness of God. And verse 3. When all the people of Israel saw the fire came down or come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple. They bowed down with their faces to the ground. On the pavement. And worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord saying for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Glory revealed. Led to humility by necessity. It's not just the Old Testament. You know how these things are reflected in the new as well. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. You're going to know the first verse about living sacrifices. But I want you to remember what has led to that verse. As you go to Romans chapter 11 and the 33rd verse. As again... The apostle now is revealing the greatness of the glory of God. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are All things to him be what? Glory forever. Amen. There's the glory revealed. What would be the response to the glory as Paul is now instructing the people? Chapter 12 and verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship. The glory of God is revealed. And as the glory of God is revealed, what is the effect? But people humble themselves in sacrifice before God, which is their worship. It's what will happen even in the ages to come. Revelation, the fourth chapter. Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8. The picture is heaven itself. With the heavenly hosts as well as the saints of God seated around the throne. 
Revelation 4 and verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give what? Glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. What happens then? Verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. They bow down and they cast their crowns before him and they say, you alone are worthy of the glory. What is the pattern that you have seen? Worship that prioritizes God begins with God. It is his glory that gets first recognition. But when the glory of God is truly rightly apprehended there is this devastation of the soul there is this humiliation of the person there is this recognition of unworthiness of sin we we live in a culture we live in an age at which sometimes it's thought even in the church unpopular to talk about sin to to lead people to an understanding that that before the holiness of god Their sin is too great for them to stand. But you must recognize this. If we do not see our sin for the horror that it is, we do not see God's glory for the greatness that it is. God's glory, truly revealed to his people, leads them in a path to see their need, not just of his glory, but of his grace. And what I want you to understand is that is the greater glory. The great glory is holiness transcendent. But the greater glory in the church is holiness transferred. Did you hear that? It's not holiness transcendent. The greater glory is holiness transferred. Back to Isaiah 6. As God leads his prophet down a gospel path of understanding. The greatness of the glory, the holiness of God has been revealed. The foundations of the threshold shake. Isaiah himself is shaken. I can't stand this. I'm ruined before this. And then what happens? Verse 6, Isaiah chapter 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin 
atoned for. What we get now is not just the marks and the measure of glory, but the marks and the measure and the effects of grace. What are the marks of grace that are being revealed here? First, it's it's so obvious to us, but we just have to say, what is it? The infinite becomes intimate. Hear that? The infinite becomes intimate. The words go past fast. But remember, the seraphim who has been up around the throne of God, the seraphim flew to me and touched me. Why is that a greater glory? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, you could say, well, man, I mean, uh, the roof rolled back, the glory of God revealed in heaven. But then heaven itself comes to a person. Is that really the greater glory? I couldn't help but thinking of it some years ago now when a, a student of mine was just relating something that happened. He'd been in a theology class. And in that theology class, they had studied that day the omnipresence of God. That God is in all places at all times fully. It's almost better to say all things exist in the presence of God. And, And my student was saying, you know, he was just in the library later that day kind of thinking... Man, that's really pretty cool. All things exist in the presence of God. That that means God is altogether, always present in all places. I mean, that's kind of incredible to think. But then he said what began to make kind of the hair rise on the back of his neck (laughs) was if it was really true that all of God was always present in all places, what that really meant was that God was present with him in the library. (laughs) And that God's hand was on his shoulder even as he was reading about God. As God's hand is on your shoulder right now. As you are hearing about the greatness of the glory of God. That is a great glory. That the infinite would become intimate in behalf of his people. That's just not Isaiah. Ultimately, what I want you to recognize is is that is the message of the entire Scriptures. What what we see at times in the Bible is, you know, the stories of the, the soldiers and the kings and the prophets and the miracles. And it becomes this, this external drama, this kind of parade of monarchs. What I wish you could see is that the Bible is not this parade of pageantry. It is a march of intimacy as God is coming closer 
and closer and closer. The one who creates the universe ultimately comes to dwell among his people and then to dwell within them. Closer, 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 and then by his spirit within. It is that gospel path, as God is saying, what I want you to know is this this God who is so holy that his glory even seems to drive the angels from his presence. That glory has brought you into his presence. And then his presence has invaded you by the work of Jesus Christ. As holiness has not just been made transcendent, but transferred. How is it transferred? One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth. Here's some measure of the grace. As we understand, not only is the distance from heaven to earth past, but to make it happen, the angel takes a coal from the altar. What's that about? But rather that that place where sacrifice would be made to atone for sin for a thousand years plus more, where the smoke fills the temple and still God is not satisfied, that altar will continue to burn with sacrifices until one day one lamb goes to a hill called Calvary and dies once for all and the veil between mankind and the Holy of Holies is rent Opened and the fire on the altar goes out because the price has been paid. The infinite becomes so intimate that he ultimately would take from the altar what was needed to make us pure. And, and the way it's expressed in Isaiah is the angel takes... Don't we hate this image? The angel takes a coal from the, from the altar, this burning coal, and he, he does what? He touches the lips of the... Pro- you know. but, but as horrible as that image, it, it is the sweet burning of a divine kiss. Because what it is saying is... You couldn't sing the song with the angels. But now I, by the work of the altar, have touched your lips. And they are pure. And you can now sing with the angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Do you know what this means? Those who are ruined, those who are devastated, those who fall to their knees and say, I am lost. I, I, how could God possibly love me, care for me? How can I speak of his glory? How could I be worthy of that? That God said, because of what was done upon the altar, I provided the ultimate sacrifice. And if, if in its foreshadowing form, 
The sacrifice would provide for a prophet to be made holy, to speak to a people who could be made holy. What would it ultimately mean when God would provide the ultimate sacrifice in his son and say, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. You are made right with me as holy as I am. So are you. And that is the greater glory. The effects of grace are that a prophet is made able to sing. More than that, he is made ready to serve. Do you see that too? That's verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Now, because we have the New Testament gospel, you are able to see the framework of what has just happened. Did you get it? Glory leads to grace first required and then dispensed and then to what? Mission. Glory leads to grace which leads to mission. Lord, I see your glory. I can't stand. But I will make a way for you so that you will be as holy as the angels able to sing my praise. And able to sing my praise, you proclaim my glory. (laughs) Who shall go for us? Here am I. Send me. It's not just Isaiah. It's the pattern again. Follow it. Deuteronomy 5, where I led you before. I'm going to go more quickly, maybe, than you can turn at this point. It's the Sinai worship again. God has appeared in the fire and the cloud around the mountain. The people say, we, we have to bow before this. We can't take this. But as God then reveals through Moses his provision, the ending of that account is this. Deuteronomy 5 verses 32 and 33. So be careful to do What the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside from the right to the left. Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. So that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. You see the glory. You have the grace. Now live it. Second Chronicles. Chapter 7 and verse 14. After there has been this revelation of the greatness of the glory of God. And Solomon himself, the king, has fallen to his knees. Even the priests have not stood before the greatness of the Shekinah glory within the temple. But then what happens? God says, 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 14. If my people, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. 
Lord, I, I see your greatness. I need your grace. I give it. Now walk with me. Pray with me. Romans 12. After we have told, been told not only of the greatness of the glory of God, but to present our bodies as living sacrifices, Paul then gives the charge. Romans 12 and verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Walk with me. Pray with me. Be a witness of me. Finally, in Revelation, the fourth chapter again. After even the hosts and the people, the saints of God, have sung of the holiness of God, we read this. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, Revelation 4, 10 and 11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and will have their being. Revelation 5, verse 11 and 12. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. As now the mission is to praise Him forever before even the hosts of heaven. What I want you to understand, it's not hard, is that this is not just something that is prescribed. It is what the believing heart longs to do. Lord, I want to see Your glory. I want to see the greatness of who you are. Show yourself. And when within the church, within the the worshiping body of Christ, we begin to say, here is the glory of God. We prioritize the worship to prioritize God and his glory itself. And and when we do that, that there is a welcoming of the heart, but, but there's also a devastation of the heart. I have... I have seen the glory of God and I am, I am ruined. I remember this week, I remember yesterday and I remember the trip here with the spouse and I, and, Lord, how can I, how can I stand before you? I need to know more than your glory. And he says to that confession. So here is my grace given for you. And when we perceive the grace that makes us, I mean, how can we underestimate this, able to sing with the angels. <laughs> that we say, I want to sing with the angels. Could never sing in my life. I want to sing with the angels. <laughs> I, I want to tell the world. I, I, I want to tell my neighbor. Tell me how to do that. Tell me how to do that. And so the instruction of the church becomes that response to the heart that wants to share the grace of the gospel. As glory leads to grace, 
leads to mission. It's not something we're prescribing in a book. It, it's not something where, where there's been a liturgy recorded here somewhere in Hezekiah 2.5, you know. God has said, if you will, let your heart lead you. Let my glory lead you. And when the glory of God leads you, what you want to do is to participate in the glory of God. It's something Bach understood. Do you remember the progression? He he has started first, almost as though the thing he wanted us first to see was heaven and earth coming together as, as that opening G major puts angels, the strings, and the shepherds, the flutes, together. Then, of course, the glory is shown and emptied as the recitations take us into the manger scene and finally to the babe in swaddling clothes who is emptied of glory and A minor, no sharps, no flats, Minor key says, he emptied himself of glory for you and for me. But that's not the end of the story. Bach begins to walk back up through the keys, adding glory upon glory, glory upon glory, till finally he ends again in G major. Because what he says is this. The shepherds, once the angels had departed, did what? They went out and began to spread the news. And what Bach is saying is this. Where he began with heaven coming to earth is now the greatest glory of all. That earth and heaven are reunited in telling the world of the glory of the Savior who came. It's our privilege. It's our worship to say what what ultimately happens is that great glory that God has revealed has come to us. But now we are co-laborers in it. We are. How do we say this? We, We don't want to be proud about it, but we want to understand it. We are participants in the glory of God, not just by our worship, but by our worship, what our worship sends us to do. Glory leads to grace, leads to mission. And what that means for a generation who wonders if the world has passed them by, is there any role for me in in what God is doing in a world that time seems to come undone? God says, "This, this is the privilege. You are participants in the greatest glory of all to tell the world. Of the one who was so holy that it was infinite, but was so merciful that it became intimate and entered you so that now in you, in you, heaven and earth unite to tell the world of the glory of God. May our worship so lead us. From glory to grace to mission.
for the glory of the one who has made us as glorious as himself for the sake of the kingdom of God. Father, would you so work this work in us? Help us to see not not just theory and theology, but the privilege, the joy, the wonder of in our worship being able to retell the story week after week, not not just in the sermon, but in the way that the service itself is unfolding, that we have seen a God of great glory who is so merciful that He came very close and gave Himself for us and indwells us to share the glory now with others. Take us from glory to grace to mission that we might revel in the wonders of the gospel in all that we do, in all that we sing, in all that we pray, in how we worship. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Brian Chapel, which was given at our Worship God 2011 conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planting and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.